I'm Joe Morgenstern, the film critic of The Wall Street Journal. The first sign of an American presence in Clint Eastwood's letters from Iwo Jima is a squadron of Navy Corsairs that attacks a Japanese installation. In another film, at another time, American audiences would have thrilled to the sight of enemy troops dying on the ground below. In this film, we're on the ground looking up through the eyes of those troops who see the Corsairs as the enemy. The reversal is unsettling, to say the least, and exactly as intended, but then it's fascinating and deeply affecting. The release of Letters follows Eastwood's recent Flags of Our Fathers. That film dramatized America's horrifically costly battle for the small Pacific island in World War II. Letters can be seen as a companion piece, a chronicle of the battle in Japanese with English subtitles from the Japanese point of view. In a larger sense, though, it's the second half of a single epic film that springs from a single stunning act of compassionate imagination. These Japanese soldiers, like any others, write letters to their mothers, girlfriends, and wives. They've been taught blind obedience to the emperor, but their loyalty collides with their instinct for survival as they come to understand they're destined to die inside their caves. Some of the officers certainly qualify as fanatics, but others take a tragic view of their plight. They know they're doomed, yet they fight furiously and heroically all the same. Eastwood's view is elegiac, but not didactic. He lets the film speak for itself, of humanity as well as primitive rage on both sides of the battle. And the two films as a whole speak more eloquently still, of epic folly and shared tragedy, of purblind imperatives and dire necessity. The sum of both parts is a war movie unlike any other. You gotta do what you gotta do, as Rocky says in Rocky Balboa, so I gotta admit that I had a pretty good time watching this 83rd film in a series that started 30 years ago. The premise has the dual virtues of simplicity and preposterousness. Sylvester Stallone's Italian stallion is pushing 60, with a son who ignores him and not much to do but mourn the loss of his beloved wife, Adrian. So Rocky lumbers back into the ring to do battle with the reigning world champion, a monstrously bemuscled creature called Mason the Line Dixon. Why does he do it? Well, Rocky has always been a champion of self-realization, and he's at it again, insisting on his right to be beaten to a bloody pulp by a 32-year-old. How he gets to do it is another story, the preposterous one. That starts with a computer simulation pitting Dixon against Rocky in his prime, and before you know it, Rocky is back in training, accompanied by his old triumphal music. I don't want to beat the point to a pulp, but Rocky Balboa is an erratic film. Various characters suffer from seizures of speechifying. A subplot about a single mother and her son loses track of her son's reluctant bonding with Rocky and his son. Yet the mother, played by Geraldine Hughes, is an attractive foil for the battered ex-pug who tells charmingly repetitive tales of his exploits to diners at Adrian's, the neighborhood restaurant he owns. And you can't help but be moved by the overlap between the indomitable boxer and the unquenchable actor. The same goes for the climactic bout, some of which is shot in an ecstatic black-and-white style that evokes Raging Bull. Against all odds, this panoply of punishment is almost thrilling, even though it's bull of a different kind. I'm Joe Morgenstern, the film critic of The Wall Street Journal, back on KCRW next week with more reviews.